Amen. Hey, last week I started with the uh, uh, category of people that I think I'm better than. And uh, actually I talked about, this was the, uh, referring to the Pharisees as people who think they're better than other people. But I started off with the ca category of people that I think I'm better than. And if you weren't here, I was actually serious about it. And I was also sobered by my seriousness about all the people I'm better than. And uh, one caveat, I, I can't, one, one clarification. I said sometimes I think I'm better than my wife because I come home and there's dishes out. The dishes that are out are always clean. They're never dirty. Okay, I want to make sure I make that clarification because they're clean. They're just in the drainer and they're not put away. So they're not dirty. Okay, I just want to make sure I made that clarification because you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes, this is one of my categories, sometimes it's easy, to, it's, it's, you can be factual but not truthful, right? You can relay the facts but it gives a perception to others of what is not true. So to clarify that, uh, the dishes, when I come home, always, always are clean. Just a few of them are always put away. Mostly, 95% of the time they are clean. It's those extra, those few percentage of times that I have some kind of uh, arrogant, insecure issue about why they're not put away. As if my life would be better if that dish was put away. But, um, and then I also got a few of you emailed me about that you are those people on the roundabout who I definitely think I'm better than. So, <laughs> no. And uh, I'm pro my wife is a better parallel parker than me, so she's, she is not, doesn't think she's better. She is better than I am in that. So, so anyway, but one of the things we talked about last week was the Pharisees, because if you don't understand the Pharisees, you're not going to understand really the Gospels. Because if you don't understand the Pharisees and the Gospels, you're not going to understand the Pharisee in you and how that Jesus came to redeem and set free that part of you so we, don't, we, we, we aren't people who live out of kind of religiosity and one of my favorite authors calls the religious fog where we kind of live in this sense of if we just believe the right things and have the right labels therefore it makes us better and that's why God gives us heaven after we die but everybody else is just in bad shape and for some reason God's made us better and that's the Pharisees. And again, if you took, the, if you took Jesus' interaction out with the Pharisees, if you, took, if, you, if you could cut that out of all the gospel stories, Jesus would just be a nice, kind, loving man. Kind of like Mr. Rogers. Nice, kind, loving. And he was. But he was also very confrontational, very challenging, very catalytic. And it was because of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, all right? Last week, go to the next slide, last, last few weeks, we talked about the parable of the prodigal son, which, again, could be called really the parable of, the, of a prodigal God or the prodigal older God, all kinds of issues you could come, but how the mercy of God was enormous. And when Jesus told this parable, the Pharisees were totally bothered and agitated by the kind of mercy God that Jesus said God had. He was saying God's mercy is enormous. And the Pharisees were like, no, it's not, no, it's not, no, it's not. So most of the interaction, if you read the Gospels, when the Pharisees came to head to head with Jesus, it was because he was showing mercy to somebody. Whether he was healing them on the Sabbath, which he shouldn't have been according to their laws, he was showing mercy, healing or spending time with sinners or whatever. It was usually the display of God's mercy in ways outside of what they thought that made the Pharisees mad. So it was Jesus' commitment to the enormous mercy of God that got him killed. Because that's what was missing in the Pharisees' equation. That's probably, 
not probably, it is what is missing in most of our equations of our understanding of God, is his mercy toward us and his mercy toward others. Even like we prayed earlier that there's some here today who think you're outside of the mercy of God. You don't think God has mercy to cover what you've done. And you definitely don't think God has mercy to cover those people that you don't think should be included in his uh, mercy handout, so to speak. Now, that was that last week. This week we're going to switch to uh, the parable of the... Good Samaritan. Now this actually, this is not art history class, but the previous painting was a painting by Rembrandt. Anybody know who painted this painting? Van Gogh. All right, Vincent Van Gogh. This is not like in, if you know nothing else today at church, at least have a few art history things. Vincent Van Gogh painted this. He was actually in a mental, he was in an asylum when he painted it um, because he was hoping for uh, the same kind of mercy that this injured man got. So it's just interesting when you can read some of the reasons and some of the context of some of these paintings. But, but again, Jesus is on the same, he's on the same kick here. He's on the ki- same theme, and he's telling this story to the Pharisees. So often when you hear the story of the Good Samaritan, and we have Good Samaritan laws, it, it falls in that category of what I call kind of hallmark chicken soup for the soul spirituality. It's just a good, warm, fuzzy feeling. Somebody did a good deed for a neighbor in distress. That is not what this parable is about. This parable is not about doing good deeds or random acts of kindness for people in distress. That's not what it's about. So get that out of your head. So if you have a perception, again, even the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's one of those added editorial additions to our Bibles. That wasn't what Luke wrote. He didn't write, let's see, let's call this section the parable of the Good Samaritan. He was just telling the stories of Jesus, and then some of our Bible publishers, and Dr. Paul Gutierrez could tell you more about this, about how this comes into being, they add these little headings. So whoever called it the Good Samaritan, there's a, probably a decent reason for it, and it was a Good Samaritan, but the story is not just warm fuzzy. All right? Here's the situation. Next slide. One day, an expert in religious law, one of the Pharisees, one of the guys with the, you know, the funny hats, stand up to test Jesus by asking him this question. All right? In that culture, Jesus was also viewed as a teacher and in that culture, the only reason someone would stand up to talk to a teacher would be to recite something the teacher has already said. In this case, this Pharisee, being totally disingenuous, is testing Jesus. It's like how many of you have been in classes, whether it was recently or in college years ago, where somebody raised their hand and they said they had a question, but they really wanted to make a statement to the professor, and it kind of irritates the rest of the class. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you're one of those students, so please stop it. So... <laughs> But they, they raise it, and he says, teacher, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Totally disingenuous question. He was trying to test Jesus, he was pushing Jesus. So he's basically saying, okay, how, how can I live the good life? I'll use that term, the good life. How can I live an eternal kind of life? You tell me, Jesus, how does somebody do that? And Jesus, like he's so, so typical of doing, He answers the question with the question. Jesus replies, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Now stop right here for a second. Oftentimes when you ask Jesus a question, isn't it sometimes irritating that you get a question back? Because Jesus is not so much in in the business of giving us the answers. He's in the business of helping us ask the right questions. 
But in this case, this was a testing question. Jesus, how do I become a good person, live a good life, have eternal life? And Jesus says, because Jesus knew what was going on. What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? What do you think? Next slide. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And let me stop there. That comes from two particular passages in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6 is where the commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And every good Jewish person, not just the teachers of the law, every Jewish person would have known that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The second thing, love your neighbor as yourself, came from Leviticus 19, which is also in the Old Testament, part of the Pentateuch, the first five books. There's a list of all kinds of laws about how we treat people. And in the middle of Leviticus 19, it says you should love your neighbor as yourself. So every Jewish boy, girl, man, woman knew that those are the two parts of the Old Testament law that everything else hung on. All right? Now, what this Pharisee doesn't indicate was he all, there's also things around Leviticus 19 about who our neighbors are that he was totally disregarding. And as we often do, we often read the Bible selectively. We read the parts that, that, that fit how we're doing our life, but don't read the parts that don't fit. Because this, uh, and we'll see here in a second. So Jesus says, right, do this and you'll live. So it's kind of like Jesus kind of played the guy's game, put it right back at him. The guy said, well, that's what you do. And Jesus said, okay, you're right, right answer, do this and you'll live. End of conversation, you would think, because Jesus kind of stopped it. This, this guy, this Pharisee, is not done. Next part. So the man wanted to justify his actions. So it's a little more testy back to God. And, and again, I'm saying this is the Pharisees, but please, please, please understand, at least I know I do, I have these same conversations with God where I'm trying to justify what I'm doing. So don't just, let's just let's talk about those ugly, arrogant Pharisees, because if you haven't tried to justify yourself before God, then uh, I would suggest perhaps you're not human. So you're not like the rest of us. And maybe you don't need church, and you should be doing something else on Sunday morning. So, but we all try to justify ourselves before God. Because he's trying to figure out, okay, what's, where's the line? That's what we always like to like. Okay, where's the line? At what point am I okay? And how far do I have to go? And how little do I have to do? So Jesus, like he often does, replies with a story. All right, Luke chapter 10. Jesus tells a story. And this is what we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. Okay, give us the slide here. Jerusalem... Down here, Jericho's over there. If you kind of, this is a map of part of Israel. Galilee is up in the north. That's where Jesus grew up. Not a real, I mean, Israel's way smaller than the state of Indiana, so it's not a real big area. Jerusalem, Jericho would have been maybe 30 miles or so, maybe 35. Mountainous, rugged, um, somewhat abandoned. That's why there were often criminals and crooks there. Um, uh, for any, and Samaria, which is right above it, is the area where the Samaritan uh, who would have, been, would have come from. But I just want you to give that context because uh, Jerusalem being the center of the worship for the Jewish people in Jericho. So just keep that in mind. That's, and we'll, I'll explain that in a second. And he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. Now most likely, the priest... Good chance he had just served his two-week stint in Jerusalem because priests had rotations in the temple, and he was heading back to Jericho, most likely his hometown. So it was, you know, by chance, 
right after the guy gets beaten and stripped, um, priests walk by. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Now stop there for a second. Why in the world would the priest do that? Well, the priest, okay, a couple of different options. A, if the man was dead and the priest touched him, the priest then becomes defiled. If the priest is defiled, he has to go back to Jerusalem and he has to go through about a week-long purification to be undefiled again. During that time, he can't collect tithes, he can't get any food, and neither can his family, and he can't distribute money to the, anything to the poor because he's not a legitimate priest during that time of undefilement. So, of course, so because he needs to do his religious duty, he can't touch a dead body. All right? And again, you and I both know we often, we often justify our actions by the same kind of perverted kind of logic. Well, of course, if I, if I did this, I couldn't do this good thing. Now, what if the man, okay, if the man isn't dead, but if he's injured, if he's bleeding, the priest doesn't really want to touch the blood either, makes him impure. And if, he, if he's injured and the man's still alive, then the man dies and the priest, by the regulation of the priest, his robe becomes defiled and he has to throw it away or bury it or burn it. And there's a little bit of expense involved in getting a new robe, getting fitted, going back to Jerusalem. Um, or, you know, if we don't know, I can't tell, walking by, I can't tell if this guy's Jewish or not. Because if he's not Jewish, if he's Egyptian or Syrian, I really have no obligation under the law because he's not one of me. Uh, we don't know why the priest went by. Convenience, or maybe he was in a hurry, or he was concerned about doing something that maybe was beyond what he should be doing purity-wise. We don't know why. We don't know why some of us kind of walk by people's needs or feel self-righteous in certain situations, but he did. So the priest walks by. A, then a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by there. side. Now this guy actually went over and looked at him. The temple assistant was a Levite, so the priest was the highest. Levite was kind of a temple assistant, a helper, Good possibility that guy was assisting this guy in Jerusalem for that two-week period and was just kind of heading on home behind him. So Levite walks by, sees, actually goes over and looks at him, sees him lying there, walks back to the other side, and he goes. Again, we don't know why. Jesus is telling us in this particular parable why that man went by. Maybe because he thought, well, if the priest didn't stop by, there's probably regulations as to why he didn't and I should probably follow him. Who knows? Maybe it was, again, convenience. Maybe it was hurry. Or maybe it was just reputation. I don't want to be seen. If the priest didn't do it and I do it, I don't want to, I don't want to mess up his reputation. We don't know why. All right? But he walks by the other side. Now, let me stop for a second. If you didn't know the story at all, let me tell you what the audience was expecting at this time. Because Jesus just said, first guy was a priest, the ultimate of religiosity. He walked by. didn't help the man. Second guy was a Levite, tier two spirituality. He didn't help him. The crowd at that time was expecting Jesus to, for the third person to be a normal Jewish layman. And he was going to show how even this normal Jewish layman had the love of God enough for him to take care of this poor man. So that's what they're expecting. But who is it that says Jesus is the third person? He says it is a despised Samaritan comes next. Now let me explain the Samaritans to you, as to how the Jews saw the Samaritans. 
All right, the Samaritan, the animosity between the Samaritans and the Jewish people dated back way to the Old Testament, back to the book of Nehemiah, back to the book of First Kings. The Samaritans had not exactly the same theology as the Jewish people did. There was a little bit of changes in some of the Old Testament scriptures. They actually built their own temple at a different site than Jerusalem. So the Jews looked down at them as kind of doctrinally impure. And some Jews would even say to eat the bread of Samaritans is like eating the, the, the flesh of pigs. There were some Jews that would say kind of in passing, I hope my eyes never fall on a Samaritan my whole life. So it was kind of, it wasn't kind of, it was this strong kind of racial, religious tension. And if a Jewish person was to be seen around a Samaritan, that's why, if you remember, Jesus was with a Samaritan woman, how that was so appalling to the disciples. Not just a woman, but a Samaritan. And you may remember a few chapters earlier than this, when the Samaritan people did not welcome Jesus into their town. And one of the disciples says, do you want us to call down lightning on them right now? I mean, that wasn't just because they were rejecting Jesus. That was kind of their attitude toward the Samaritans. See, boom, God is going to get those people. Their theology was bad. They were seen as impure. Uh, there were all kinds of superstitions mixed with good doctrine. Not unlike you and I might view other religions. Eh, I'm not really sure if God is pleased with them. Because they don't see things the way we see things. And again, this parable is not about universalism or whatever, but I'm saying it's just, it's interesting how Jesus kind of explodes that perception. It'd be not unlike if I was telling a story about two Christians that walked by, a, a man is on the road, and the third guy walking by was a Muslim. It might be like, whoa, 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 he can't be the hero. Please don't make a Muslim a hero of the love story. Or be like in the American Old West if they made an Indian the hero of a story saving a cowboy's life. It just, you just don't, Jesus was messing with these people. He was messing with them to make a point. So despised Samaritans, they were despised. The Samaritans in turn took every opportunity to insult and injure Jews back. So it was a two-way street. A lot of, a lot of rock throwing back and forth to each other. Uh, like the Hatfields and McCoys, but really worse and personal. I mean, a lot of insult, injury, back and forth, back and forth. Not unlike maybe some relationships you have that may be very subtly that way, where there's insult and injury thrown back and forth. Friendships, your parents, maybe your marriage. You don't think of it in those dramatic ways, but the same dynamic come into play there. So the despised Samaritan becomes the hero. He comes along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. Now, also, too, on that one, if he took him to an inn, it was most likely in Jewish territory. So here you have a despised Samaritan man coming into town with an injured, beaten Jewish man. A little bit risky for a Samaritan guy to come into town. Kind of like being in this, in this 100 years ago in the American South. Uh, African-American coming into town with an injured white guy, what are they going to assume? So he's, he's not only spending his own risk of money and time and energy, he's actually risking it, perhaps his own physical health because of this compassion and love. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Then Jesus asked the question, and by now the Pharisees are somewhat 
agitated, confused, not quite sure how to respond now because you cannot make the Samaritan the hero of a story about how one gets into, how one experiences eternal life. But Jesus does that. So Jesus asks the man, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And the man replied, probably somewhat sheepishly, well, this is the one who showed him mercy. We don't know, but perhaps the guy couldn't even get himself to say the Samaritan because it was such a foul word for them to say. And then Jesus says, yes, now go and do the same. So the mercy Jesus is talking about here is not just, like I said, it's not the random act of kindness mercy. It's not the kind of mercy of giving a buck to a homeless guy. It's the mercy of giving someone mercy that absolutely doesn't deserve it, and they may not give you mercy back in this situation reversed. And you know that. And so Jesus is saying there's a whole different aspect of the mercy of God you guys don't get. Now, I'm going to, uh, let me show you a picture of one of my heroes, um, a guy named Ernest Gordon. Anybody heard of Ernest Gordon? Ernest Gordon. Um, he was a soldier for the British during World War II. Uh, he was captured by the Japanese, spent three and a half years in a Japanese internment camp, saw friends and colleagues tortured, brutalized, decapitated, everything. Uh, the Japanese were ruthless to the Americans or to any of the Allied prisoners. And Ernest Gordon was one of those prisoners. So they endured incredible torture at the hand of these Japanese. They started asking themselves the question as prisoners, because Ernest Gordon had some kind of church background, as did most of the soldiers in that, in that era of history, they started asking themselves the questions, okay, what in the world does Jesus have to, what does Jesus have to say to us in this hellhole? Because if Jesus has nothing to say here, he has nothing to say, period. So they started wrestling with, okay, Jesus says, love your neighbors yourself. So up to that time, they were just letting fellow prisoners die. They were all selfish for their own food and medicine. If they got it, they kept it. They didn't share it. They started, this small group of them started their own church in the camp, and they started, they started asking themselves, okay, if we're supposed to love our neighbors ourselves, that's to start with our fellow soldiers, prisoners. And they started sharing food, giving their own food, taking care of, at the risk of their own personal health, of other prisoners who were sick. So they began to kind of change the culture of them, them, not of the camp, but of them as prisoners. Then they started asking the way, way, way harder question. Okay, Jesus also says, love your enemies. And they were among themselves, there's no way. We're, we can't love these Japanese, no way. I've seen what they've done to our friends. We've seen what they've done to us. These guys were emaciated. They were like sticks. And they started wrestling with, okay, Jesus, how do we love these people who we hate and who hate us. And then uh, there's this, toward the end of the war, and this is one of my favorite true stories, but also there's a movie called The End All Wars. That movie was made about this guy's life. All right? And this is what happened at the end of the war, toward the end of the war. They're still in the camp. And what happened was they got on, they were in like a, a, a traveling entourage where a bunch of Japanese wounded soldiers were also part of their group because the Japanese, 
They had a real strong sh code of shame, and if you were injured, you were considered like dogs. So the Japanese didn't even take care of their own prisoners, or their own people, right? So here they are, these emaciated American and British prisoners on the same train or roadway with injured Japanese soldiers. And this is what he writes about this, their experience. These soldiers were no longer fit for action. They had been packed into the railway cars and were being returned to Bangkok. They had been picked up and dropped off. These are Japanese, their own people, Japanese soldiers, and, uh, off according to the makeup of trains. Whenever one of them died en route, his Japanese comrades simply threw his body off into the jungle. The ones who were survived to reach Bangkok presumably would receive some kind of medical treatment, but none were given any treatment on the way by their own people. They were in a shocking state, Gordon writes. I've never seen men filthier. Uniforms were encrusted with mud, blood, and excrement. Their wounds, sorely inflamed and full of pus, crawled with maggots. It was apparent why the Japanese were so cruel to their prisoners. If they didn't care for, if they didn't care for their own, why should they care for us? The wounded men looked at us forlornly as they sat with their heads resting against the wall, waiting for death. They had been discarded as expendable, the refuse of war. These were the enemy, but they were more counter and defeated than we had ever been. And then he says, without a word, most of the officers in my section unbuckled their packs. And these were men who had been wrestling with, what does it mean to love our neighbors? Unbuckled their packs took out part of their ration and a rag or two, and with water canteens in their hands, went over to the Japanese train. Our guards tried to prevent us. No good, no good. But we ignored them, and we knelt down by the enemy to give them water and food, and to clean and to bind up their wounds. Grateful cries of thank you in Japanese followed us when we left. An allied officer from another section of the train had been taking it all in and yelled at us, what bloody fools you are. He said to me, I replied, have you never heard of the story of the man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho? I asked him. He gave me a blank look, so I continued. He was attacked by thugs, stripped of everything, and left to die. Along came a priest who passed him by. Then came a lawyer, a man of high principles, and he passed by as well. Next came a Samaritan, a half-caste heretic enemy. But he didn't pass by. He stopped, kneeling down. He poured wine through this unconscious man's lips, cleaned and dressed his wounds, then took him to an inn where he had cared from his own expense. But that's different, the officer protested angrily. That's in the Bible. These are the swine who have starved us and beaten us. These are our enemies. Who is my enemy? I demanded. Isn't he my neighbor? God makes neighbors, we make enemies. That's where we excel. My, my enemy may be anyone who threatens my privileges or my security or my person, as well as those poor wretches who know no better. If they don't, we at least should. Whether we like it or not, we are the ones who make the enemy and lose the neighbor. My enemy is my neighbor. The officer gave me a scornful glance, turned his back, and left me. Interesting enough, finish the story here, Ernest Gordon became the chaplain at Princeton. And in the time when it wasn't appropriate, next slide, he invited Martin Luther King to come speak at the chapel at Princeton. Got all kinds of hate mail for it, all kinds of... So it's interesting that a man that had that experience began to see the love of Christ in a whole different take. Now, next one. Here's a couple questions I want to ask. Okay, the question is, who's your neighbor? And let me ask it this way then. Who will become your neighbor in the next few weeks? Because the question is not the static one, who's my neighbor? It's going forward into this next week and the next week, who is going to be in my path that I won't expect 
It won't be in my, I won't be in my planner. I won't have written down, look for beaten person on the side of the road. You know, we're too much in a hurry, but who is going to be in your pathway the next few weeks? Who will become your neighbor in the next few weeks, and what will you do? Here's a couple possibilities. First possibility is this. And maybe somebody who's the least among us. Those are kind of the easy, not easy, but okay, let's go, we'll find somebody who's homeless or needy, and I'll give them a couple bucks, buy them a cup of coffee. They'll become my neighbor this, next week. And that's challenging, and it costs resources. There are people here that excel in that, and that's good. But sometimes we just, that we, we think the Good Samaritan stops there. Okay, next one. What if it's someone who disagrees with you? What if somebody disagrees? What if it's someone of another religion? What if it's somebody who disagrees with you about something vehemently about something else, and that's the person, that's the neighbor God puts in your path the next few weeks? That he may ask you at your cost, at your time, at your expense, at your reputation, to do something merciful for them. And that's a challenge too. Not, maybe not overly challenging. Next one. Someone you don't like. Not just disagree, you don't like them. It's, it, to some degree, it's easy to show mercy to people you don't know. Yeah? Anybody? Anybody have an amen on that one? Easier to show mercy to people you don't know, you don't know than to people you know. Because people you know are usually people you either are for you or you feel like are against you in some form. Maybe that's the person that's going to ask become your neighbor next week. Next one, and you'll notice I switched to a red background. What if the neighbor that you, the, who becomes your neighbor these next few weeks is someone like the Samaritan Jewish intensity, someone that you despise? And you might say, well, I don't despise anybody. That's a strong word. Can we get over the, uh, uh, being appalled at the strong words that the Bible uses? Because the Bible uses strong words because we have strong emotions. We do have contempt for people. I don't, you know, somebody might say, well, you don't despise the people that mess up in roundabouts. No, I don't, but there's a seed of despising in me, right? We all do that. So who is it? What if God asks you to be a neighbor to somebody you just, not only you don't like, you don't like with a little bit of emotion. I don't like them. And you would never say you despise them. Or if you do, then you're really far gone. But we do that. Is that the neighbor God might ask you to serve at your expense? But the next category, the last one, which is really what the story is about, would you serve a neighbor who despises you? You may not despise them. The Samaritan served a Jewish man knowing that Jewish man, if he was fully awake and healthy, that same man might spit at him. But Jesus tells the story, no, that's the kind of compassion and mercy you have for people when the love of the Father is in you. You can even show mercy to those people who have wounded, insulted, and despised you. And that's where we cry out, I cry out, no way, God, no way. I can't do that. You can't expect me to do that, because if he was awake and healthy, he'd be spitting on me now, probably throwing rocks at me and calling me names. Why in the world should I spend my time, money, and energy and reputation in doing anything good for him? That's the biggest challenge. That's what this story is about. That's why it was so appalling to the Pharisees. Jesus was saying the love of God that you can have, the kind of love God can fill you with, is the kind of love that you will show mercy even toward, toward those who would absolutely show you none because they despise you. And again, that's why I said we, we, we kind of throw our hands up to God and say, well, that's not fair. Because nobody can do that. 
and I think that's the point of what Jesus is trying to say. If you're like the, if you're like the Pharisees, just trying to, trying to draw the list. Here is a list of acceptable people I can show mercy to. But whose names or what kind of people are on the other list that you don't show people? Like if certain people you have a hard time forgiving who have wounded you, insulted you, hurt you, maybe way back in the past, maybe in the more recent past, who are those people? And what if Jesus said to you, I want you to do something that will cost you something for their benefit? And you will say, I can't do that. It's not in me. And I think that's where God says, then you're in a good place because you can't do it unless you allow my love to be what motivates you to do that. Because this is the last slide we'll go here. Again, the mercy of God is enormous. Jesus, the Bible says that even while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. And in the same way that Ernest Gordon or the Good Samaritan or who knows how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers of Jesus throughout history have served in love and shown mercy to those who despise them or hurt them, the source of it all is because that's what Jesus does for us. And the mercy of God is enormous. It's enormous for you if you think you're outside of God's love. It's enormous for you if you don't think you can show love to that person that, you, that has hurt you or despises you. That's what the mercy of God is about. I, I've, more and more lately I've thought, you know, I would love it if people would say about the people of X's church, they are just a merciful bunch of people. Not in a soft, sappy, chicken soup of the soul kind of way, but in a way that's like, I don't get those people. They only, not only do they do things for others who can't do things for them back, they do good things for others who wouldn't do good things back if even they had the chance to. Whether it's in your neighborhood, your family, maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's how do you be merciful to your spouse when you don't think they're being merciful to you. That kind of makes it right, rubber meets the road. But that's what, that's what the gospel is. That's what Jesus came to show. That's what he rattled the Pharisees with. That's what he rattles us with. But he says that's possible, but that's what he came to do. He came to give us that kind of a life, to have that kind of strength and love, that kind of mercy that overflows into people's lives. And that would totally, totally radically change your home, your family, your neighborhood in this town if we, were, if we lived that way. Uh, let me pray. God, we are... Uh, we want to be the kind of people, just as Paul says in Ephesians, that we experience the love of God and then in doing so become full of the life and love that comes from God so that we can show love, mercy, generous mercy, enormous mercy, even to those, especially to those um, who we know wouldn't return it if they could. But God, we want to be stronger than that. We want to have strength that you can give us. We want to be those kind of people. We want to see the community change in Bloomington. We want to see our marriage and neighborhoods change, not on a strategy of random acts of kindness. We want to see change on a strategy of intentional acts of enormous mercy. That's who we want to be. We want to be those kind of people. So stretch us, challenge us, but also would you fill us for those of us, which is all of us, who desperately hunger for a greater experience of your mercy toward us. And would we understand uh, your compassionate, tender mercy toward us and then we become willing conduits pouring into the lives of others. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.